Hello, and welcome to the Urban Dharma NC podcast. In this fourth part of a series, Dorje Lopa and Dr. Hun Lai teaches about the songs of Milarepa, the 11th century Tibetan saint who reached the ultimate state of awakening. The presentation of these profound songs is integrated with teachings on the Guru Yoga of Milarepa Sadhana in order to introduce a more contemplative and experience-based approach to practicing this liturgy. Urban Dharma is a Buddhist temple in the heart of Asheville, North Carolina. We are supported by your generosity and by our online store, TibetanSpirit.com. To learn more about us, come visit our temple in person, or look us up online at UdharmaNC.com. Thanks for listening. So we continue with um, this first song, Six Illusions, as metaphors of impermanence. Um, so uh, His Holiness Dragun Kyabgun often says that one of the best things, one of the best practices that we can do that is helpful uh, very immediately it doesn't need to be kind of something in the future or even something kind of uh, very spiritual mystical or special but that very practically very immediately to contemplate to meditate on again these words you know meditate makes it sound um, like it's some exotic thing that we do uh, but basically, it is to familiarize our heart. Our intellect is quite familiar for many of us. But to really familiarize ourselves, familiarize our heart with the very fact of impermanence, is really the most helpful practice when you get right down to you know essentially what are we talking about when we talk about practicing Buddha Dharma um, it's it's to contemplate and to get it right the contemplation is so that we get it you know that all compounded phenomena which basically means, for all intents and purposes, all our experiences are transitory, are insubstantial, are never fixed, arising through many causes and conditions, and will abide for as long as those causes and conditions are there, and will dissolve and pass on when those causes and conditions are no longer present. Um, sometimes these teachings on impermanence might seem to uh, emphasize the impermanence as a negative. 
And it's not so much that the Buddha is saying that impermanence is negative, but the Buddha wants us to see how we normally respond to impermanence as undesirable. But impermanence itself as a fact uh, is neither you know, desirable or not desirable, neither positive or negative. It is a fact. Right? Then when human beings or sentient beings are involved in this fact, then we have to choose. Right? This is desirable, this is not desirable, this is preferable, this is not preferable, this is happiness, this is suffering. Right? But reality as it is, it is what it is. Um, so impermanence on the level of experience on the level of our experience impermanence brought to you know our level is basically uh Uncertainty. Uncertainty. That's the, the, as I say, many of the translations of teachings given by Thai forest monks, the translators uh, will use the word uncertainty uh, or not sure. And so rather than, you know, big abstract impermanence, this universe is impermanent. Life and death impermanent. On the essence, as an experience, how do we experience impermanence? We experience it as uncertain. Um, so here... Uh, the six illusions as metaphors of impermanence. Milarepa teaches Gampopa about different ways to come back to this point. This point about impermanence. And in the face of impermanence, what we can do and what we should do uh, if we don't want to be a kind of a victim of impermanence. Um, and, and we are only victims of impermanence because we, we allow that to be. It's not that impermanence has some sort of personal agenda or vendetta against us. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's just our own you know, inability uh, to accept or to function within uncertainty our inability to function uh, in the face of uncertainty that creates suffering and so the first illusion as a metaphor is to see more clearly how uh, all our appearances, uh, the appearances that we experience, meaning sight, sound, smell, taste, 
touch and uh, thoughts and feelings. Right? Those are the six uh, that, that in fact, they are all uh, like last night's dream. Uh, in the dream, everything often seems so real. And they definitely produce experiences of joy, uh, sadness, exhilaration, disappointment, excitement, arousal, boredom. Although I've heard very few people say, oh, I had a boring dream last night. <laughs> Has anyone? Yes. Yes? Oh, okay. Being at work. Oh, <laughs> dreaming of being at work, I see. <laughs> but generally, you know, nobody really complains about, oh, that was a boring dream. Uh, but dreams, you know, uh, this is dream-like quality, uh, is that while in the moment... Of in the middle of that moment, it seems so powerful, so important. When you wake up, you go, "Well, oh, that was a dream." Well, until then, you know, people start sending you books on dream analysis. You know. <laughs> then, you know, you add one layer of suffering on top of another. Uh, so, uh, you know, even Dharma people seem to place a lot of undue, especially maybe Dharma people, place so much emphasis on dreams. I had this dream, that dream, what does it mean, you know? And Gampopa, uh one time, you know, he taught, he said, you know, when all dreams subside, you know, that is when you know your mind is well trained. Uh, and another time somebody went to Milarepa about dreams, you know. He said, even the so-called awake, even the experiences of the awake state is not trustworthy. How much more uh, experiences in the dream state, in the so-called dream state, uh, that you should play, put any, you know, uh, emphasis on. You know, but we have dream analysis even within Buddhist traditions you know um, an insight into your greatest desire or fears you know first consultation $95 <laughs> even dream interpreters have to eat and live you know don't blame that, them for that <laughs> Um, but it's like you know like they're not reliable Um, so in the 37 Bodhisattva practices it says uh, one of the verses it says right with regards to suffering realize that think or think you know uh, if you want to relate to these teachings more as strategies for waking up rather than truths that we sign our name and subscribe to I think we tend to relate to religion that way and then we say Buddhism is a religion so we also sign up you know, and say oh I got to subscribe to this 
but better, I think, to relate to the teachings as strategies that you know, noble strategies, not random strategies, not neurotic strategies, not misguided strategies. So that's where the faith element comes in, that these are noble strategies, ennobling strategies to make us, you know, wake up, to make us more sane. Then if we relate to this strategy, it says that, you know, consider all your sufferings to be the same as a mother losing her only child in a dream. A mother or a parent losing their only child but within a dream. There is not saying that necessarily there's no pain at all. Yeah, but there is. But once you wake up from that dream, yeah, there might be some residual, right? But the residual effect is not as powerful as if really in real life a, a parent has lost a child. Yeah? The residual effect goes on and on and on and on. That it goes on doesn't mean you are an evil person or you're a bad person. It just means that, you know, we're under the power of afflictive emotions. And it's not a judgment. It's a diagnosis of what the problem is. Likewise, in the 37 Bodhisattva practices, it says, when you are experiencing joy, pleasure, and happiness, regarded as the appearance of a rainbow, you can enjoy the rainbow. Right? You only exhaust yourself when you start chasing rainbows, hoping to find leprechauns, at the end with a pot of gold. <laughs> Is it leprechauns? Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> with a pot of gold at the end of rainbows. But if you just see the rainbow uh, and enjoy it, and then be done with it. Uh, don't get trapped uh, by pleasure, happiness, joy. So, dream. The next one, uh, Rechumpa. Mila tells Rechumpa, he says, when looking inward, looking here at your body, at your own form, transitory like a city of Gandharvas, its rising and falling make your mind uneasy. Have you cut through birth and death, Rei Chumpa? When I reflect on this, when I, Milarepa, reflect on this, the sublime Dharma comes to my mind. My mind turns to the Dharma. Most of us are not even capable of seeing how our body is transitory like a city of Gandharvas. And when we have no choice sometimes, when we have to see that fact, right? when your doctor tells you, this is too high, that is too low, 
then our mind becomes uneasy. Our heart becomes uneasy. Uh, and his prescription to Rei Chongpa is, you need to cut through birth and death. The first step to cutting through birth and death is to be less attached to either birth or death. Uh, to, to be less attached to birth, to be less adverse to death. To not have so many hopes from being alive and not to have so many fears of death. Gandharvas are these beings that are said to Gandharva in Sanskrit. Ganda is remember in our eight offerings? What is that? Yeah, what's what's that? It's, it's like scent. Uh, like, the, like the lotion. Like the lotion, the perfume, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Spa treatment. Spa treatment, yes. <laughs> we offer spa treatment. Right? Um, gande, gande, yeah, smell. Good smell. So these are called the smell eaters. They eat, they nourish themselves by smells. We eat by mouthfuls, portions. They eat by smell. And they say that, then they said that there are some beings that eat by thoughts, consciousness, like they consume, they subsist on just thoughts. And those who are satisfied through smell, those are satisfied through actually, you know, mouthfuls. So these are Gandharvas. But the, the belief is that Gandharvas live and you can have a whole city of Gandharvas in a drop of water. Not that every drop of water has Gandharvas in them, but it's believed that if you have a random drop of water somewhere, okay, like in the tip of a blade of a grass, yeah, a whole city of Gandharvas kind of move in. Then what happens later in that morning? At least in our time. It evaporates. What happens to the Gandharvas? Armageddon. (laughs) Not just starve. Their world ends. Their city ends. So that's the example here. It dries up. Their universe collapses. So our whole universe is someone else's Gandharva, city of Gandharvas. Our whole universe is someone else's city of Gandharvas. We might think, you know, our universe is so, so ancient. Well, compared to what? (laughs) Right? 
only within our time frame of living only you know about 80 to 100 years then the universe is long but we are just someone's city of Gandharvas uh, by the way that's also the kind of at least the belief or the mythology behind why offering bowls are to be wiped completely dry at night when you turn them over <laughs> it says that if you leave some drops there Gandharvas might move in and then when it evaporates then they're all killed so now wipe rigorously <laughs> make sure that no Gandharvas move in in that dropped um, but here without worrying too much about actual Gandharvas but appreciating what this metaphor is referring to look at your body it is as transitory as a city of Gandharvas so you see the movement in this song first external objects of the senses see how they are subject to change uncertain illusory and all of that as I said this morning there's no better time than now to really see and get it nothing is certain then next to the body still kind of external still kind of uh, physical third when looking inward at the perceiving mind then we see that it's fugitive like a bird in the crest of a tree so restless it makes your mind uneasy again most of the time we are not even aware of how busy how neurotic how tiring our mind runs itself continuously endless flow of feelings of thoughts of emotions like a, a torrential rain which by the way local deities we need that um you know, it just keeps, you know, kind of like mm, this waterfall, like the Niagara Falls, you know, that water. But we don't even see it. But now, like Rechompa, we know enough Dharma that we begin to pay attention, then we see, wow. And this is we're like a fugitive running right running 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 right? not feeling that we can stop not feeling that we can you know rest 
So completely restless. And then when we see that, our hearts, our mind becomes uneasy, not comfortable. And if that's the case, what do we need to do? So Mila says, have you taken a hold of mind's secure ground? Here, of course, the secure ground is groundlessness. <laughs> but the mind's secure ground is talking about the nature of mind. If we have taken a hold, if we have grasped, if we have established ourselves in that ground, in that mind ground, uh, and the mind ground is that which realizes, that which experiences groundlessness. So here is talking about the need to experience directly uh, this nature of the mind. If we have that, then all the movements of the mind, yeah, all the movements of the mind uh, will not uh, trouble us. So all the waves that are stirred up, uh, we know uh, there, there is a reality to all these movements that is free from, that transcends the movements. So first question he asked, Rechumpa, have you cut delusion at the root? Second, have you cut through birth and death? Third, have you taken a hold of mind's secure ground? The fourth, when looking inward at the breath moving inside, so literally, the breath that moves inside our bodies, it is impermanent like mist in the air. The fading and passing of mist makes your mind uneasy. Again, most of the time, we don't. We don't pay attention. We're completely unaware, oblivious to if you stop breathing, that's it. You know. That's how fragile we are. You know, if you stop breathing a little bit longer than usual, then ta-ta, you know, game over. Um, but of course, you know, we don't want to see that. You know, we think this, this, this is pretty stable. This will continue, right? Even all the teachings that we might have read or heard about death, we think. 
Uh, it'll happen to other people. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Until, you know, we get some kind of wake-up call from the doctor's office or, you know, while driving on the road or <laughs> a near miss, you know, then it's like, whoa. You know, yikes. And, you know, Hendersonville Road. Oh, yeah, Hendersonville Road. <laughs> and then, of course, that lasts for a little bit. And then <laughs> yeah, back to, oh, we'll live like immortals. Mm. So the fading and passing of mist makes us uneasy. But have you seen movement vanish on its own? So now he's using breath, but he's not talking about breath vanishing on its own, but movements of the heart-mind. So, so we see our minds kind of moving. Yeah? And even like torrential, like a torrential rain. We see that. But can you also see that movement vanish. How can it vanish on its own? How can the movements of the mind vanish on its own? No, it's a real question. <laughs> Say, say more. <clears throat> um, you were saying it's it's talking about the the movements of the heart mind, mm-hmm. and that makes me think of thoughts arising and then vanishing. Um, yes. Come and go. And and but then he's saying also <laughs> the actual coming and going vanishes. Have you seen that? He's asking. Have you seen the coming and going vanishing? What does that mean? Yes. Yes. When you recognize the essential, the nature of mind, there is neither coming nor going. Not that it's now static. Right, frozen. But that the very notion of coming and going is based on a dualistic. To come and to go. Well, to come, come from where? To go, go where? To abide, abide where? Sort of Madhyamaka contemplations on like past, present, and future. Right? Well, how do you know that there's past, present, and future? How do we know? Like, like this, the passage of time, how do we know? Huh? 
as an experience. You know, I'm not talking about scientific or astronomical or how we, how do we know past, present, and future? Change. Well, what does that mean as an experience? Huh? Age? No. I mean, what what is it? How how do you how just start? You know, start with how how do you talk? How do we talk about past, present, and future? Usually. Well, no. We say what? Do we want to? Do we want to say past or present? Choose one or future. Past. Past. So so, you know, more more concretely, we say, well. Last hour, da 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 da, right? Or yesterday. Well, how does yesterday exist? In a memory. Hmm? In a memory? Or? No, like in order to have yesterday, you need what? Today. Today. But what's. Can we verify the status of today? Now, when? Today is not yesterday. So yesterday and today seems to be produced together. But then if yesterday and today is produced together, then you have just contradicted the temporal, you know, the cause-effect relationship between yesterday and today. That continuum. You're conflated the two because you say, well, they, 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 they produce each other. And, and so then also you only have tomorrow or the next moment because you say this moment. But this moment is based on the belief that there was not this moment. So not this moment in terms of time would be in front and behind. In some cases, it will be top and bottom, you know, however you imagine time to move. So these three moments of past moment, present moment, future moment, yeah, down to even just the moment it takes to snap this finger, there is past moment, present moment, future moment. They are completely reliant on each other. When we realize that, Deep as an experience rather than a, you know, mind exercise right now, a brain exercise right now. That's when we see that hmm, movement is an illusion and therefore it vanishes. What do you see? A finger waving back and forth, which is what? A finger? Moving. Moving. <laughs> is it really a finger moving? <laughs> yeah. One of those tricky Buddhist questions. <clears throat> right? Yeah, it's... it's at, at any given moment, there is only what? That moment. So movement is stringing together all those movements, all those moments, 
But as, as a concept, because whenever we say now, right? You already saw that. Now, it's already gone, right? You say now, right? Almost as immediately as when you say now, poof, it's already gone. So what you're stringing together is just a bunch of memories. Yeah, coming back to memory, yes. But, but, and then we call that movement. But nothing is moving. (coughs) Nothing is moving. No thing is moving, but there is movement in that sense. But also no movement. So in a different tradition than than Milarepa, Dogen, founder of Soto Zen, uh, he has sayings along the lines of... um, Wood does not become ashes. Wood is always wood and ash is always ash. <laughs> Which seems to contradict Nagarjuna's or you know, basic Buddhist teachings about cause and effect. You say, no, the cause is wood, the effect is ash. Uh, of course, Dogen is not that uneducated as a Buddhist that he doesn't get cause and effect. Yeah, but he's pointing to the same point here. It's it's only because we have we have these two things, then we say this ash came from what was used to be wood. But wood is always wood, and ash is always ash. the relationship that we connect between the two is only based on standing at enough of a distance to establish that connection in our heads and not so far and not so close to what's going on. Because if you zoom in closer and closer and closer, You cannot find ash. You cannot find wood. In that way, have you seen movement vanish on its own? On its own, why? Because this is the way things are. Right? The the first kind of level Buddha wants us to see is to see how things are interdependent, Right? And arise through causes and conditions. So that level, yes, cause and effect, we want to observe. But there's, so to say, a more profound level that we need to plumb into, which is to see how actually there's no movement. So then you get language in the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras, like the Heart Sutra. Yeah, of course, the first part. It's form is emptiness, emptiness form. And the same for the rest of the, of the four skandhas, which is if you want to expand that sutra, then you also have to say, feeling is emptiness, emptiness is feeling. Perception is emptiness, and emptiness is perception. Mental formations is emptiness, and emptiness is mental formations. Right? Consciousness is emptiness, emptiness is consciousness. The five skandhas. 
But then later in the Heart Sutra, it, it, it doesn't do this kind of... It, it's, it's emphasizing another point of the teachings on emptiness, which it just says, no, 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 no. There is no suffering, no cause of suffering, no end of suffering, no path to the end of suffering, negating the Four Noble Truths. Seemingly contradicting the words of the Four Noble Truths, but actually it is pointing to a more subtle point of understanding the Four Noble Truths. There is only suffering if there is what? Freedom from suffering? Hmm? Freedom from suffering? Not in this case, not looking for that. A self? A, a being. A self. Otherwise, right? Forest fires, if there were no, you know, beings there, you know, whether it's a millipede, or a whole town of human beings. Well, it's just what it is. But because there are beings involved, then happiness and suffering becomes important. Then because of that, it is important as part of our bodhisattva resolve to pacify suffering. So it's important to fight and put out the fire. It's important to fight and put out the hate. To fight, so to say. To, to provide an antidote to hate, to fear, to suspicion, to all the different types of fires that are being lit as one of the road signs in these treacherous roads in Ladakh the highways have all these cute signs one of them says accidents are caused <laughs> we, we, we kind of use the thing accidents as like you know oh it was accident it was just an accident. Well, hello. Accidents are caused. <laughs> In some cases, there's enough of a cause, right, to be prosecuted as arson. <laughs> Not No longer just accident. But even pure accident, it's caused. Next, oh, yes, friends assembled here. When looking at these friends assembled here, they are transients like crowds at a fair. And looking at these friends assembled here, they are transient, like crowds at a fair. Once gathered, they are sure to part. 
The idea is that you know nobody lives in a fair. People just come together for the fair, and then once gathered, they are sure to part, making your mind uneasy. This is even more so for the kind of society that Tibet was. That uh, more so uneasy than for us, because you know friendships, relatives, all of that are. Not just about emotional support and emotional uh, satisfaction. It's often a matter of life and death. It's it's survival that you surround yourselves with friends and relatives, because you can't just you know build your own house, and you can't. Hire people simply to just build house. You rely on family and friends. And so here, Rechungpa, Milarepa said to Rechungpa, "You know, when you look at these friends assembled here, uh, so friendships and relationships are a lot more kind of strong in some ways uh, in a society back." In the 12th century in Tibet, here I think friendships have become you know, kind of transient. Um, but when you see that once gathered, they are sure to part. It will make your mind uneasy. Uncomfortable, and so then, in the face of that, Milarepa asked Rechungpa, "Have you set relations on a higher level? And what can that mean? Set relations on a higher level? I don't think this means, you know. Yes." Ah, not necessarily increasing that circle. Then you increase more neurotic. <laughs> Let me invest, right, in more attachment to more friends and more relatives. <laughs> But it is increasing. Yeah, increasing how? Say that again. You said. Set relations. More in terms of, in, in, you know, rather than having this uh, small group that say you're depending upon, that you feel responsible for, that feel responsible for you. It's a great, you know, it's a broadening of that circle to feel a sense of responsibility to all, so that kind of wherever you're traveling, there's this. Okay, that's certainly uh, a point to be made on, about that. Uh, it's hard to say, but if you, uh, I don't know the original Tibetan, and of course I don't actually, you know, translate from the Tibetan. 
So I can't say for sure, and then also I don't have the Tibetan for this, but if you look carefully what the English is saying, have you set relations on a higher level, what could that mean? If it doesn't mean yeah, thinking in bigger numbers, what could that mean? Placing more importance on them than practice? Than what? He's telling him to do that? No, no. No. All, all, all this line, all this second last line of every verse is, this is what you should do. Hmm? Not like, Hello, why have you been doing this? <laughs> this is a challenge to him and say, do this. Set your relations on a higher level. Is it seeing the connection of other beings is more than just like physically present with them or the ordinary beings? To those beings further beyond in the path than you. Hmm? Those beings further beyond in the path to Chenrezig to... No, no, no. Are you saying seeing them as Buddhas? Seeing people, um, seeing like a less distinction between this person and that person. You could, but I'm looking for something else. Maybe more than the emotional, like they come and they go, sort of like, like grief, like between grief and like rejoicing and seeing someone. So more than just, this is my son, this is my daughter, this is my wife, this is my husband, this is my friend, this is my second best friend, this is the friend that I would call on in case the first friend fails me, this is the best man, this is, I don't know who to choose to be the best man. Raise your relationship with them to a higher level, which is... Placing them uh, in a state of freedom. Seeing beyond the temporary circumstance of our relationship and saying, you know, we uh, can care for each other's deeper good, greater good, more meaningful good. And not just busy ourselves, as the saying goes, providing our relations with fish, but rather teach them how to make tofu. (laughs) Ah, non-GMO beans, please. family, mm-hmm. the ties that bind us. Mm-hmm. So you bind yourself with people um, yes. in a way that you can't, you become more burdened by yes. them and not free, like not... Yes, not so much free of them, not free of but, them, but freeing each other Yeah. so that it's not a codependent relationship, but a growing Growing in clarity and diminishing confusion. 
So often in Buddhist teachings, the emphasis has been on how scary and bad, right, relationships can be, blah, 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 all of that. And there is something to be said about that. You know, like it's worth thinking about that and not just say, oh, it's always good. It's always good. It's like, come on, just objectively look at the evidence, right? It causes people to kill each other. Yeah. Often we say, you know, religion is bad. You know, it's caused people to kill each other. Well, falling in love is equally bad. How many people have been murdered because of love, supposedly? They should ban that as well. (laughs) Having said that, it's also the case, I think, that we can either look at our relationships as, you know, as Jess used the word, as ties that bind us as in in bondage, or we could establish relationships that free us. Not free us from each other, but free us from confusion. So all the Jataka tales about the past lives of the Buddha, each of them has kind of a morality that is being taught. This is generosity, this is patience, this is wisdom, da 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 all of that, right? But more basic, I would say, than, um, and I think so far I've not seen anyone writing about this, uh, a geek at heart, I'm thinking academic writings, analyzing Buddhist stories. Not much I have seen at all, this emphasis that Beneath the surface of whatever morality tale is being taught in this Jataka tales, it's also showing a bigger pattern of how these... Because every time in that story, it seems like the same characters, but in different lifetimes. You know, Buddha would say, oh, during that time, I was the shepherd, uh, Ananda was the thief, you know, and uh, Shariputra you know, was the chicken, <laughs> or whatever, you know, that, oh, I was the husband, you know, and Yashodara was the wife, or the sister, and so, like, everyone in the Buddha's life, right, is related to, like, in the past life, they were together, and so this whole gamut of these stories also tell us that, while it is true that if we keep our relationships in the samsaric, confused context, then from lifetime to lifetime, we torture each other. But if we elevate the way we relate to each other and say that we together have made this vow to awake, which is bodhicitta, to make this vow to be awake, to wake up, then, now, from lifetime to lifetime, we commit ourselves to waking each other up. So the story that I've told before, the story of Siddhartha and Yashodara, in one of the important lifetimes in the back, how Siddhartha in that lifetime was an ascetic practicing in the mountain, came into the city because he heard the Buddha of the time was there, Dipankara. And he wanted to offer something to Dipankara. And uh, he had nothing to offer. And he saw this girl, this woman, 
who is a who is a florist selling flowers, and she had five stems of lotuses. And at that time, Siddhartha was called Sumedha. And Subedha said to the garland, the flower girl, "Would you give me a f- couple of those flowers, because I want to offer it to the Buddha?" And she said, "No, I want to offer it to the Buddha." And he said, "Well, can I, can I have two of those?" She said, "Well, what do you have to give me in exchange?" Otherwise, it wouldn't be you giving it. It's still me giving it, <laughs> even if you gave. You know. Then Sumedha said, "I'm I'm an ascetic. I don't have anything." She said, "No, you do." He <laughs> said, "When you offer this, merit is what you will gain. So I want your merit." She said, and he said. You want my merit? She said, "Yes, I wanted you to dedicate your merit to uh, ensuring that from this lifetime until either one of us exits samsara, from this lifetime until then, we will be together from lifetime to lifetime." And Sumedha thought about it and thought, "Okay." <laughs> Either he didn't know what he was doing, or he knew exactly what he was doing. There's only two <laughs> possibilities to make such a promise, you know. And he did it, and he said that from then on, yeah, they were together from lifetime to lifetime. And so it is said that when Siddhartha became Buddha, he said, you know, now I need to help her because she has helped me so many lifetimes. And we made a promise: whoever gets there first ensures you know, that the other will also get there within that lifetime. And so then, Yashodara too was liberated. And so, have you set relations on a higher level, Rechongpa? So you don't have to abandon family and friends, but you do have to start relating to them. Yeah. From a higher perspective, when looking at the wealth collected here, evanescent like honey of the bees, someone else enjoying your things makes your mind uneasy. And so here is talking about actually, as as your time becomes less and less. You might feel that all the your things will become others, and then you even worry about who gets what, who takes what, who does what to what, right? And so you try to control everything from the grave. You can only, you know, do this, 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 and that to that, and not this, 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 and that to that, and all of that. And he says, this is like bees, you know, they work so hard. To make honey, busy bees—they work so hard to take the honey, to 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 collect honey, to produce honey, and then someone else makes honey lemon tea with it. And when the bees come buzzing, you know it's like, 
away. So when we see that, you know, he says, you become uneasy. But in the face of that, have you opened the treasure of mind itself, Rejongpa? Have you seen the Buddha qualities, which is your true possession, which is your true wealth? Have you seen that true wealth in your own heart? If you have, if you have opened that, then you don't have to feel uneasy. If you have set relations on a higher level, uh, even though they will gather and disperse, your mind don't have to be uneasy. Uh, Even if, when you have seen how movement vanishes, then, even with breath circulating or not circulating in your body, you are not, you will not be uneasy. If you have taken a hold of mind's secure ground, then even when, you know, due to external circumstances, the mind is kind of restless, like now, restless, you don't have to feel uneasy because you have taken a hold. And if you have cut through um, attachment to birth and fear of death, then even when you look at the fact that your body, as you get older, is only moving in one direction, you know, falling apart despite whatever they tell you. It's only moving in one direction. You know? Then, your mind don't have to be uneasy. If you cut the delusion that whatever you experience is absolutely real, concretely real, and then seeing that, oh, now they are not, your mind need not be uneasy. So all these yeah, these six metaphors also offer kind of six uh, kind of six situations where you can be free from the uneasiness of what is. Yeah, all all six kind of undesirables are only undesirables because we have the wrong attitude towards them. Which is why Lojong is also translated as changing attitudes. Changing our attitudes. We say changing mind. But maybe more, more illuminating is to, think, is to change our attitude towards things. And when we change that, then you don't have to be uneasy in the face of what is. Then the mind turns to the sublime dharma.
Thank you for listening to the Urban Dharma NC podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider supporting our mission to foster a deeper understanding of the teachings of the Buddha, to build meaningful community, and to integrate contemplative teachings into everyday life. We invite you to make a donation online at udharmanc.com or make a purchase at our store, tibetanspirit.com. Thank you. May all beings benefit.